My name's Jason Fleming, and this is the More Than My Past podcast from the Forward Trust. Remember Helen Mirren in Prime Suspect? Well, my interviewee today is the real detective who was the inspiration for that unforgettable TV crime series. Jackie Moulton joined the police force in 1970 and climbed up the ranks despite being a gay woman in a heavily male-dominated environment. She tackled robberies with the famous flying squad branch of the Met and acted as a whistleblower on police corruption in the 80s. Partly as a result of that culture that she'd been working in, Jackie slipped into alcoholism and has been in recovery since 1992. She now puts all that experience to use, working as a story consultant for other crime dramas and as a clinician in HMP Coldingley, helping addicted prisoners. You can also see her in her own CBS reality show, The Real Prime Suspect. I hope you enjoy hearing the fascinating insights Jackie shared with me on crime, prison, addiction, recovery and the police. I've got a question I'd like to ask you, which is, I think is fascinating. Where you're, you, you know, you said that you were interested in, in prisons from quite a young age and that you're interested in a woman called Elizabeth Fry, who I didn't know and who I've looked up and researched and found on old five pound notes. And she's an amazing woman. I just, I just wondered if you'd like to talk about her just a little bit initially, just to, to put into context why you go into prisons and why you've spent, you know, a lot of time unpaid doing work for people who to be honest, are at the bottom of most people's lists of people to feel sorry for. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I thought I have thought about this many, many times as to why aged around 10 or 11, 12 or whatever it was. I, I was interested in the Industrial Revolution, you know, the mills, the dark satanic mills, <laughs> London, the uh, Pennsylvania, you know, prisons. And I don't know where this all came from. As a child, I've got no idea. Yeah, my, my favourite subjects were history and English English literature. They That's what I kind of excelled in, in that period of the Industrial Revolution. And so I researched about penal reform, Elizabeth Fry, she was her amazing, work in prisons. And I just found it fascinating, and it has always kind of stuck with me. So when I joined the police... It's a bit like saying, did you break that window? Yes, I did. But why did you break that window? It's a much more open question. So I'm always interested in the whys. And the police would, you know, to be honest, say, that's not our job, Jackie. The whys are not the whys. (laughs) We're not of any interest in why you've done it. Did you do it, mate? That's it. The whys of why people do what they do gives you hope for the rehabilitation kind of Mm -hmm. process, I think and gives them hope for themselves about that self-reflective thing as we do in recovery have to self-reflect 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 and look at our kind of stuff so it did start with Elizabeth Fry she's one of my icons this this lady um, and I'm I'll do it quite crassly obviously because I don't want to dwell on it too long so I want to talk about you but she basically was one of the first people to go into prisons show empathy Mm. show passion and care for women and their children who were in prisons during the 1800s and and she did some incredible things and she eventually ended up on the back of our fivers which is you know no mean feat to be stuck on a note I guess that means you must have achieved something although she was replaced by Churchill but I think we would have preferred to have her she's amazing I think so yeah she's amazing so just going on from that our responsibility to show empathy and some sort of reform for these people who go through that prison system. We kind of owe it to the victims of their future crimes to turn them around and to show them that. Do you think that there's more we could do in the police force and in the prison service 
to to the way we treat addicts and the way we treat people with addiction problems that go into the NIC? Yeah, well, I think the police, the police for start have a much more understanding uh, regarding, you know, addiction and they brought in uh, other services to work with the police in terms of, you know, tri- kind of offering treatment. I could have researched it a lot more, to be perfectly honest, but I'm well aware that the police are much more interested in working with partnerships as a, as a form of harm reduction than yeah. actually charging people. And what they want to do is they want to give them opportunities to um, kind of change, especially when those have been arrested for uh, drug, drug-related offences, but they're given a pathway to go down as an option for the prosecution. And it's becoming more obvious to the police, I think, that in terms of, you know, addiction, that there are many, many ways to try and help people as opposed to putting them before the court. During your time, I mean, it's well recorded about you being such a pioneer as a female uh, police officer, especially in the in the flying squad. But the culture then of, of policemen, the buzz of the flying squad and how and I sort of related it to coming out of the theatre or something like that, when you finish on a on a job and you're buzzing and that buzzing then turns into, you know, drinking with the team or drinking alone or whatever it is. But that was that really endemic in the culture of police work, you know, the drinking. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it wasn't, it was endemic. It was, um, yeah. See, again, the the way that the police is today, they're much more conscious about the effects on people's mental health. Now, I'm not going to talk about the flying squad and mental health because that's those two don't go together. But what I am saying is that the answer to anything when you're a police officer in the days that I joined was to go down the pub. Now, that doesn't mean they're alcoholics. I was the alcoholic, but mine was a progressive alcoholism. It wasn't. It was just a, a, a slow burn that I had. And I think there's lots of other issues around it. But in the flying squad, it, I will always say we drank on a good job, bad job, any old job, to be perfectly honest. It was part of that sense of bonding, yeah. uh, you know, in a group, a sense of belonging. A sense of belonging is massive. A core social motive, we all have a, a sense of belonging. That's you just look at why you pick the friends that you have, why you live the life that you do, uh, is because of a sense of belonging and identification. Definitely. And Jackie, do you think, you know, because obviously doing the work you did and seeing the things you saw and couldn't unsee, do you think that the booze was to a degree anaesthetizing yourself against some of that stuff? You know, does it, does it feel like it was a. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. See, the other thing, when I went into recovery, I realized that I was a feeler anyway, so I'm a feeler and I'm a governor. Now, you know, you're a rare breed because you're a female governor and you're also this sense of that you had intense feelings and stuff. So those two don't come together. It's incongruent to be like that. And the culture that we had, don't show your feelings, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I would just kind of not let, let those feelings kind of come out, obviously, because you don't want the DCI to come and go, oh, my God, what's going on? It wasn't that kind of feeling. It was about feelings of, you know, she saw a dead body or my friend said to me, I used to hate post-mortems. You should just look at it as a piece of meat, Jackie. I said, I can't do that. Yeah. I can't look at this at somebody's, you know, son, husband, father, whatever. And I couldn't kind of get the human element out of my mind, really. I couldn't never look at somebody as a piece of meat. I just couldn't do that. They had a life. She wasn't being disrespectful. She was just saying that's the way that she coped with it. When I came into recovery, I found out that there was almost two sets of people. There were feelers 
And then there were underfeeders. And when I first came out, I was really jealous of the people who didn't feel. I thought, how amazing would that be that you don't feel? But then I realised that they drank to feel, I drank not to feel. feel. <laughs> that makes sense. It was the same principle. But they were disconnected from their feelings. I was over-connected to mine. And I found that fascinating in the rooms where there were two, almost, I'm being gen- generalisation here, but it seemed like there were two distinct groups of people who were felt and didn't feel. So that process of leaving the police force, when did you start your recovery? When did you stop drinking? Was that after after the police? No, 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 before. I'll tell you a little story. I think it's quite a funny old little story, really. But I was uh, a detective chief inspector and I was in Kensington, Chelsea. I was at a meeting of the police consultative group and um, Alcoholics Anonymous, in their public information, gave a presentation to, to the police consultative group. So with my little rescue hat on, I said to the guy, his name was John, look, how can we, the Metropolitan Police, help you alcoholics? You know, what can we do to kind of do something so we could put literature in the custody suite that were charge rooms then? Um, and I said, we could put on the cells, when you wake up in the morning feeling like shit, put on the cells, call alcoholics and numbers on 0800-1212. So that's a really good idea. He said to me, this is higher power stuff. Why don't you come to a meeting? I said, a meeting? Why would I want to come to a meeting? I'm a busy detective. You know, that arrogance of the alcoholic. So, again, this is absolutely true. With a rescue hat on, I um, said, yeah, okay, I'll come. And I went to a piazza meeting in um, World's End in Chelsea, uh, you know, the uh, World's End Chelsea meeting. It was so interesting. So he said to me afterwards, again, higher power. Now, if I, if a police officer came to an open meeting, I don't think even to this day I would say to them, did you identify with anything? Why would he? It's cop. Why would he? But this policeman said to me, uh, this um, guy said to me, did you identify with anything, Jackie? So I said, well, it's all very interesting, blah, 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 you know, but hey-ho, how can we help you? But I kept his number. I kept his number. His name was John. Then I called him one day when I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I just got sick sick to death of myself. And I knew that there was something more to me that I knew that I was, there was like what you call treasure in the trash, that there was something. And I'd had a lot of kind of issues along the way. I was openly gay in the police. I'd given evidence against a corrupt officer who went to prison you know, being a female, I felt isolated. Um, it was a sense of one foot in the police and one foot out of the police, and I didn't feel congruent. Anyway, cut a long story short, I called that guy, John, and said, I don't know if you remember me, my name's Jackie, I'm a cop, and um, I said, I think I'm one of you. It was a moment of I'd had enough, and... Um, there was a guy that I read about in The Guardian who uh, was um, a street drinker, I think he was, and he woke up one day, his name was Dan. Uh, this was at the same time. Uh, and he said that he'd had enough of himself and he uh, works at, he was now working at Crisis at Christmas. I thought, I've always wanted to do that. I cut that piece of paper out and I thought, well, if you can do it, Dan, I can do it. So I called this guy, John. He took me to a meeting with another guy, proper 12-step. Two men came to my house. 
etc etc and um i worked in crisis for the next seven years of my recovery on my anniversary which is the 29th of december 1992 and i worked those 28 29th 30th just to give back to that bloke danny really and to john and those people from you know the chelsea meeting and yeah, i'm really grateful and i've never had a drink since nice congratulations thanks that culture within the police force though is do you think that would have been your road anyway Jackie or do you think no I don't know I don't know the answer to that I think um one of the issues I had which is nothing to do (laughs) with the police and I developed at an early age you know I don't come from an alcoholic family but we did I did internalize a sense of shame and that we had nothing to be shameful about, but there was this kind of what other people thought of us as a family growing up. So I know with a great, and I know my mum was doing the best thing for me and all of us, but she was always worried about what other people thought of her, us as a family. And I used to think, you know, does it really matter what other people think of us as long as we're okay? And I eternalised that shame as well. And my sexuality was just a nightmare in you know, by then, and it's in the 60s, I didn't know anybody that was gay, just the whole sense of loss, and then finding a male institution as a place to work, which I chose to do, and then being kind of, you know, gay in a world of men, and, you know, the normal comments, well, you just not have the right yeah, yeah. sex with a geezer. I mean, they were pushing you, weren't they? I mean, they were pushing... Um, you've said it before about you know you'd partner up with someone and they would see that as some sort of diss that they would that they got you you know that you yeah, that were... was that one guy yeah he said to me uh the first day I, I was introduced he said why don't you fuck off you cunt oh. I was on the yeah. phone and I said and and, and where'd you go with it yeah. you know and he played terrible tricks on me and um he just made it life difficult well I stuck him for six months and then I went to my boss and said look I can't work with this idiot anymore but it, you, you know it's like you felt like a battered wife yeah yeah sure within. getting back to coldingly and the, the recovery of the lads in there how do you feel that, that that's been affected at the moment do you, do you worry for them oh god Cause... yeah i do definitely worry for them i definitely worry for them because they felt that when they went to the uh, groups, you know, that was the only time they could identify with like-minded people. Again, you know, a prison is an institution and it, it's about tribalism also within an institution, whether whatever institution you're in. And so therefore, you know, they probably feel vulnerable and, and who can they talk to, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, the, the classic, what we call the fuck it button of the, of the addict is there. I'm locked up, blah, blah, blah. I'm out for an hour a day. Somebody offers me a bit of gear. Oh, fuck it. That's the problem with it. Whereas in normal circumstances, they would have different tools not to take it. Like they'd go to the work or they go to the gym or they come to a meeting or they go to a library. It's all shut down. Their world is shut down. Our world's shut down in COVID. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? 23 i don't think people realize they still every time i say it they don't understand when i say no 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 23 hours a day at least they're in bang up they're in their cells and they go yeah yeah but they get they get out for their dinner right and i'm like no they don't and the thing is nobody understands about prison prison is not on the top of anybody's agenda that's the point nobody you know people say oh they've committed a crime you know tough to see 
blah, blah, blah. The punishment is being deprived of your liberty. That's what the punishment is. You've been deprived of your liberty. It's not about, you know, a punishing regime once you're in prison type of thing. It's about giving people hope. You have to give people hope and the opportunities to learn a skill, job, educate, rehabilitate and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, when, when people kind of go, oh, well, you know, five star luxury hotel living, they haven't got a clue. We have to have prisons. There are some very, very nasty people around and they have to be uh, locked up without a shadow of a doubt, without a shadow of a doubt. So I'm not advocating any of those type of things, but it is kind of, it's very, very tough. And especially, you know, my world is with the addict and with the alcoholic. And what I try to do is just kind of go back to their story uh, that they tell me their journey in life and what's happened to them and um, whether they've committed a murder or whether they've committed another offence. But inevitably, you know, they just say to me, I'm, I'm just a frightened little boy, but I put up this persona, this macho, this... And it is also about parental influence. I could tell you a million stories about parental influence, about being brought up in families with dysfunctional, you know, fathers. And and one guy was saying, my dad was in prison. He was an armed robber. My dad was in prison uh, for murdering somebody. I've heard this a few times. And they said, as a child, innately, I knew I wasn't a thief. I know, I, you know, I'm not a thief. So they had that within them. And he said, the only way that I could do it, it's a bit of a stocky boy. He said, but the only way that I could survive on that state with this big reputation as my father was to kind of be a scrapper, a fighter and everything else. And he didn't like that really. So he fueled himself with drink and drugs um, in order to fight. And it culminated, unfortunately, in killing somebody. And um, he got a life sentence quite rightly so. But what he did say when you kind of do this work on them, it, they don't tell you in the first week, it might take 12 months, 18 months, but eventually that process, they will tell you, I'm just a frightened boy. It was all about fear and not not feeling enough. And that doesn't make an excuse, but it's an understanding of, of trying to complete the circle within themselves in order to learn how to validate themselves for who they are. Just the same journey that I went on in recovery and millions of others have done it, then we must offer the same to them. I've seen a lot of prisoners who, you know, who are frightened to leave because they're worried about what they will do or where they will go. It well, they leave the forty-three pounds in their pocket. With, you know, maybe a bell hostel if they're you know hostel to go to if they're lucky mm. and everything else. You know, mm. but it's easy to go back to the default setting. That's the point. Mm-hmm. You know, we know about the default setting. And so, you know, addiction is also can be construed as a habit type of thing. And then it becomes all too hard. So you actually go back to what they know best. That's why I, I still work with them if I can when they're released. You know, and, and when I say that, that's just kind of an opportunity of phone call, communication, meeting up, chatting, etc. It's tough. It is tough. And it's down to the kind of you know, individual and where people have been in prison a long, long, long time, many years, that's the hardest for them because they're just so institutionalized. But, you know, sadly, we do have to have prisons. Um, That's the way that it goes. But we have to offer them hope and opportunity to change. And, and you know what, some will never change. Mm -hmm. Some will just never 
change. And, I, you know, I've worked with those as well. It's just like talking to a brick wall. They are incapable or they don't want to change and they feel much more comfortable, you know. Like one guy had, uh, and he did want to change, by the way, but he said, you know, he was a good-looking guy and he said, I've got a scar down my face, a bit of a swagger. And he said to me, Jackie, but what happens if I find my authentic self and I don't like it? <laughs> yeah. Because they're too used to the persona. They're too used to the false masks. And some of the work that we do with them is to uh, for them to draw their false masks. Say, you know, and give them a mask. You fill it in. And they fill it in. And half the face is kindness, compassion here. And the other half of his rage, you know, <laughs> revenge. And that incongruence again, you know, which uh, to find their authentic self and that persona that people put on, you know, we have to gently take that away. There was another guy that said, my mother abused me, Jackie, abused me. And he said, intellectually, you know, I know that I keep hanging on to that abuse because if I let it go, because I've rattled on about it all my life, and I don't mean rattled on, because I've gone on about it, because mm-hmm. so, you know. It defines him. It defines, defines him. him. That's the word. That's the word. What happens if I let that go? You see, these are massive starters within the human complex complexity and personality that he knew that. He said, I know that that defines me because I've used it all my life and I'm in my forces. So we worked on it and he let it go. He eventually let it go. He's got a very, very stable relationship. He's got a fun, you know, a job. He's got a home. He's just an amazing man. And do you know what? He asked me to to his house. He lived in South East London when he got out with, with his mum. And he introduced me to that mum who he told me had abused him so much. And he he loved her. He was so loving towards her. You know, you could see the love between them. Mm-hmm. But it is about if we carry on holding on to that victim mentality and the, the bit that's defined us and it's been part of our story all our life, at what point are you going to let it go? And, and it's at the point that you let go that you find out your authentic self. Well, actually, this is who I am. Unchanged. It's hard, isn't it? Because it's a mate, you've got to be amazingly brave to do that, especially as you get older and older and you think, you know, there's people I know that you think, they, I know they feel that to, to open that door and to get through that door is going to be so painful and they don't feel they'll be able to recover from it. So that's yeah, the fear, the fear of going through the door. It's that fear. And then you say, if you go through the process, like anything, isn't it? The process, you know, the fear is worse than the process. Yeah. So you go through the process of it. And, you know, I've had prisoners write letters that they never post, no, no send letters. And they get them to get back into their childlike state and, write a letter to their mum in their non-dominant hand or their dad and they express their feelings and then they write back a letter as the adult, mm-hmm. you know, and the healing has to come between the inner child and them. Yeah, because what happens is, isn't it, that if you that, that wound that you've got as a child, you're still in now in an adult body, you're looking for somebody else to heal that wound, mm-hmm. you know, the next relationship. I was talking to a woman yesterday, she was fascinating, and she was saying to me, that she said, I kept having babies. I kept having babies because the next baby will change how I felt. Mm. And it's the same thing. You know, the next relationship will change how 
I feel. And then the next new car, I, I mean, I always used to kind of, I was a bit of a petrol head and I'm not now. Recovery's taken away my petrol head. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't care what car I drive now, but I'd have all like the top, you know, BMWs, Mercedes and all of that kind of thing. But it's like you get the car, you research it, you got it, you pick it up. Well, within about three weeks, you're going, oh, that's a nice car over there. Oh, I like that one. It's never enough. You're never satisfied. That's the addict. It's just never enough, never enough. Something else will fix me. No, you have to become your own best friend. Mm -hmm. You can't look at somebody else to fix you. And and if you don't do the work in recovery, you'll always look externally to somebody else to fix you, uh, and it ain't going to work. That's a sad thing. It's not going to work. It's about... It's hard work, recovery. You have to, you know, average Joe Bloggs does not want to look at themselves. No, I understand. Oh, mate, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much for chatting to us. It's always, I always find it inspiring to, to talk to people who, years after recovery, are still so committed to putting back into, uh, especially in the prisons, putting back into the prisons, because it is a relentlessly awful place. And to be free and to walk into the prison like you do, by, of your own choice and help the people in there is an amazing, I find amazing. I think it's important, you know, I was brought up on service. And the other thing is, I just finished on this. One, one of the things I have learned in recovery is that you find your ministry in life. You find your ministry in recovery. My ministry is in a prison um, <laughs> because I think the fact is that you're in recovery, you're, you're an ex-cop. There's two sense of identifications. I think the fact that I'm gay helps because of that sexuality kind of issue that you know that somehow or another that helps and I think you know probably with a bit of age and talking to the granny or the mother or something but all that combination of it all and what's most important is it I understand their world because yeah. I've been a cop for decades and decades and so it's all about identification on so many levels and I I will tell you this that my life is richer because of the work that I've done in prison and meeting these people, my life is so much richer. And for them, feeling feeling within themselves that they can open up and I, and it feels safe for them to tell another human soul how they truly feel. You know, that's a gift. Basically. It is amazing. Amazing. If you're interested in hearing more about the More Than My Past campaign, and viewing dozens more inspirational stories, check out the campaign website, morethanmypast.org.uk. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, subscribe, and look out for future episodes.